Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Again, have to be careful of the speed. What a comeback season for Hal Sutton. Come right back toward the hole. Hey everybody, welcome to another Be The Right Club Today podcast. This week's guest is a, uh, a coaching legend, a golfing legend, comes from uh, one of the, uh, uh, the most famous golfing families out there, Mr. Billy Harmon. Billy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to see you. Billy, we spent a lot of time together. Yes, uh, we have. Inside the ropes, outside the ropes. Uh, so I don't even know where to start. Well, I was I in the I was in the last group with you when you won your first tournament at Disney World. I know you were. I know you I were. Think, Y'all I were think, trying to I win that. I think Jay Y'all was five or six that. shots up, and you caught us. And, and did you beat Billy Britton in a playoff? I did beat Billy Britton. I made about a fifteen footer on the last hole to get in the playoff. I remember, I remember that. that. I do remember. Yeah. 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 Do, yeah. So you said something to me a long time ago. I think this is an appropriate way to start. I was talking to you about the golf swing, and you said, you know, a lot of times I work on the golf swing from the finish backwards. Mm-hmm. You remember telling me that? Yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, we've been teaching around here a lot, and uh, why don't you tell everybody why that you think that's important? Well, <clears throat> you know, the, the older I get and the more I teach – and you would probably be able to answer this better than I, but I don't think it's possible to play good golf if you have fear during your swing. I, I would agree with that. I don't think it's possible. Uh, yeah. Some people have enough ability to get away with it at times. And I think if you learn to swing to the finish, it's difficult to do and still try to control everything. So I think it has a lot of benefits. I think to, uh, uh, you know, Jimmy Ballard, in my mind, uh, got a bad rap early on because some of the stuff he said we thought was different. And it really wasn't that different. But, you know, he, he talked about finishing tall, finishing with your head on top of your spine and things like that. And it's hard to get to that finish if you're guiding it or if you're fearful. So I think it has many benefits. I think if you get to the proper finish, you've probably done a lot of things correctly without thinking about them, which is also a good thing. But I believe that to do it, you have to give up control. And that has to be in the computer before you pull the trigger. And I think that in observing people of your level and the amateur level, that uh, one of the biggest things that keeps people from being any good at anything is fear, fear of failure. And if you're well, thinking of failing in your swing, 
uh, you're probably not going to get to the finish, you know. So I think it has a lot of different uh, pluses to it. And uh, the bottom line is, I think if you know where to finish, you have an idea where that is, and you can train yourself to do it, you might not have to think of the 47 things that you're doing before you get there, which also might be beneficial to the golfer. Well, you just made a statement on there that I, I absolutely love, but it's contrary to most every good golf. You have to give up control. Yes. You know, we spend our whole life on the golf course trying to put things under control. Sure. And, you know, so there has to be, but I totally agree with you. You have to give up control in order to play fearlessly. And the problem is we have so much information now and it's interesting and it's good and it's fascinating, but the swing takes a second and a half. So how much of this stuff can you actually think about when you're playing? <laughs> and so, um, it seems to me as I watched you guys and I had a front row seat as a caddy to watch the best players in the world. Um, I think that the best players have a connection to the club face. Mm -hmm. And if you know where the club face is, you're going to be a pretty good player. But nowadays we've got ground forces and all, all this stuff, which is fine, but I never heard a great player. You know, when you hit the shot at, uh, players you know i bet you weren't thinking about boy i engaged my glutes perfectly halfway down and i had the proper ground force at p5 you know and you know i got a feeling that you were thinking about releasing that club and, and going right at the flag you know well i was i was Obviously thinking about playing good too well yeah. I wasn't thinking about controlling anything other than that club face which you mentioned yeah and you know to me, I mean, one of the things that I talk about in here and Chase does too, uh, we love to see a player that knows where the club face is at. Oh, man. Because if he knows where the club face is at, he can fix most things. And uh, he can play. And you've seen that throughout your time as mm -hmm. a, when you were a caddy, but also as a teacher, you know, a guy comes in or you're playing alongside a guy and he knows where that club face is at. He can kind of predict where that ball is going to go. And well, and club face for the most part will dictate how people swing. You know, Lanny Watkins was more open face at the top and a releaser and Trevino was closed face and a glider through the ball. My dad used to say, if you taught Lanny to come down like Lee did, he wouldn't break a hundred. And if you taught Lee to come down the way Lanny did, he wouldn't have broken a hundred. So I think the club face kind of dictates a lot of what people do in their swing. And uh, years ago, the older players, I think that's all they ever really knew about it. You know, they might think of a turn or something like that, but it was pretty uncomplicated, I think, the uh, older players. And they seem to have owned their swing longer from what I've seen. And so, but there's so much coaching today. And like I said, I, I have no problem with the information uh, but the young people I teach, I try to do much more on the golf course. And you got to learn how to score. At the end of the day, the number that counts is what you shoot. And I think that um, actually a lot of younger kids don't like taking lessons from me because I don't want to spend a lot of time on the range. I want to go on the course and, and 
What do you see when you get on a tee? You know, what are you looking at? Uh, what's the architect telling you? What's that pin placement tell you what to do and how to score? And I don't know if you can do all that stuff if you're so consumed with mechanics. Um, my dad used to say the, the laws of the jungle dictate that animals will walk with their head down and get eaten. So you got to use your eyes more. So I, I thought most great players play golf with their eyes. They see the shot that they want to hit and that translates into their body somehow because they know how to hit the shot. And then they got to stay out of the way of it. And that's where the fear comes in of not. Uh, so I think it seems like nowadays, and you work with a lot of, there's 5,000 golfers that can carry a 320, you know, but they hit it five miles in the air, but they hit every shot five miles in the air. And they never vary, you know, they don't vary the shot and the shot selection. And so when they're on, they look unbeatable. But when they're off, they're, they're, they can't find the world with it, you know. And so I believe, and this is something that you did well in your prime, uh, I believe that good players control the ball and everybody else, the ball controls them. So when you pick out the shot that you want to hit, then you have to let the control go and execute what, what you saw, the shot that you saw. So, uh the more I look at good players, the more I think that they play with their eyes. They have a good golf IQ. Uh, see, nobody's ever shot 72 under, so you don't have to shoot at every flag, you know. <laughs> Pars are, are, are your friend in pro golf, even in pro golf, they're your friends, you know. So I just find that the better players knew how to flight the ball when they wanted to, you know. Um, I always thought as great as your shot was at the players, uh, I think he had a five iron at Riviera when you won the PGA. To that left pin, you put it in there, you know, right geometrically yeah. in the center of the green. You know, it was right. almost as good a shot as you hit at the players. You might not have ended up as close, but for what you were trying to do at the time. It was equally as good. For the guy named Jack Nicholas sitting in the clubhouse because Jay, Jay played with him on Sunday. So I, oh, I, really? I was on the course that day. So, and I know what a difficult shot that is to that pin because it doesn't kick off the hill. <laughs> no, it doesn't. You think it is, and visually you think it will, but it, it ain't going to go there, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so you had well, to it was those shots before you hit them. Yeah, it was a longer shot than the one I hit at TPC. Yeah. And, you know, it was... Uh, there's no greater setting than the 18th hole at Riviera oh, without a doubt. And, you know, and then to have my idol standing up there waiting on me to get in, you know, and uh, it was, it was a memory that I'll never forget, but you know, one of the things you talked about and I won't, I won't chase to chime in with what he thinks, but I talk all the time about flighting irons until kids learn how to flight an iron. They can't predict where it's going to come down. And oh, that's wow. what you've been talking about. Yep. And, you know, we push it hard in here and uh, chase. Yeah. Billy, but I don't how want your take on this too. Do you guys think that it's a lot of it is the, the technology, a lot of it's the, not I say technology, but it's more the equipment you guys had to, with a lot of balls, you had to, right. You had to lock, you know, you'd hit the low risers and now, you know, I mean, obviously we can launch it lower. We can do stuff, but the ball doesn't spin as much and it almost, 
makes it easier to just, you know, a Tony Finau or, a, or you know, these, these high ball hitters can hit it at a certain, a certain angle and not spin it and get away with it every time. Well, I, don't, I definitely think they're a product of their equipment and it's not their fault. I mean, if we grew up with this equipment, we'd probably play the same way. Um, but I, I like what Asinger said one time. He said, great players hit their short irons low and their long irons high. I thought that was a great analogy, or at least they had the ability to do both. Um, we do see quite a few more three-quarter follow-throughs. I, I think we're seeing more of those at, at the pro level, and they're flighting the ball differently. Um, I always thought it was interesting, Hal, and you played with them more than I, but when I caddied for Jay, he for some reason he got paired with Jack quite a bit, maybe 20 times, which is a lot. And Jack wasn't a guy to knock it stiff. He always hit it pin high. And I think to hit a ball pin high, you have to have control of the trajectory. And, and so Jack wasn't the type of guy that was going to flag hunt every hole. He, he hit the club that would hit it pin high, and he was very rarely going to short side himself because of it. And so he took that ability to fly his irons, and nobody could hit a long iron higher than what he wanted to to hit the ball the right distance. And to me, that's the key to being really good iron players. Can you hit the ball the right distance? Hogan told my dad, if you hit a shot right at the flag and it went 40 feet past the hole, that's the same as missing it 40 feet left or right. And so um, I lost Hal there for a second. Yeah, I'm coming back. Okay. And so uh, I think hitting the ball is a, really hitting the right distance a big thing but to your point i think the older players had to have more shots because the ball curved more and it went shorter and you know everybody talks about how much further it went but what if they narrowed the fairways percentage wise to how much the ball curved less you know so you guys were hitting it shorter and it went crooked <laughs> they're hitting it longer and it's going straighter and still you see a lot of bad drivers out there really well, and that's what I was going to say too, Billy. Like we have so many people that come in here. Man, hit my irons great. Drivers all over the place. I personally, I, I could, I could stake my my flag down on this argument and say I don't think drivers go straighter. I think that, I think they're easier to launch high and far. But I think yeah. that I mean, fairway percentages are lower now than when Hal played. We looked up that stat a couple couple mm -hmm. podcasts ago. Some of it's the distance, obviously. It's going further, so it is going to go a little bit further offline. But man, we've got. There's so many guys that come in here and can't hit their drivers at all, like at all. And that could just be bad golf swings, whatever. We're, we're trying to help them with that. But sure. I think to your point, you know, if they make it too narrow, obviously that's what Bryson did at the U.S. Open two years ago. He just bombed it farther than everybody else. Everybody was hitting the rough, so he had less club in. You know, but I don't – I think – I mean, how do you think that they go – like you're, you drive it you know, that much straighter now than you did with, with the spinnier ball. Cause in, in essence, spin keeps a ball. I mean, you, you knuckle a ball, it's going to go farther offline than if you have a lot of backspin on it. So in theory, more spin should be a straighter. I mean, we spin a wedge more than we spin a seven iron and we hit a wedge straighter than we hit a seven iron. So a lot of it has to do with spin access and all that stuff, but how, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I don't think I hit it any straighter, but there's a lot of factors that <laughs> have something to do with that. Three artificial joints and 63 yeah, years old has something to do with that. <laughs> but I want to get your take on this, Billy. I'm not skirting that question, Chase, but you made an interesting comment there. You talked a lot about irons, 
flighting the ball, hitting it pin high. Raymond Floyd took me under his wing when I first went out there, which was one of the great competitors, you know this, of of all time. And he told me, he said, Hal, if you really want to be successful out here, you must learn to hit it pin high. Mm -hmm. And you made that comment there. I think all the great players out there knew that. Uh, But you were out there long enough, and plus you've been a great player and and you're – your history from a family situation has always been around great players. What do you think is the greatest attribute of a great player? I mean, is it his driver? Is it his irons? Is it putting thinking? What is it? If you had to list them one, two, three, four, five, what is it? First thing that would come to mind is the ability to hit good shots when you're nervous and scared. (laughs) Yeah. I don't care how good your swing is. If you can't do that, because if you're any good, you're going to be in the hunt a lot. Yeah. And guys get nervous, and they should. And, and not every Sunday when they're tied for the lead, do they go out to the range and all of a sudden the club feels like it did the last three days. Yeah. I think a lot of it is, you know, can you produce shots under pressure when you have to? Um, you know, driving doesn't quite seem to be as important as it used to be, but I thought the display of golf on the back nine on Sunday at the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines was sickening. Every great player other than Rom drove it like a seed gun. Not <laughs> one of them. No, not really. Now, when DeChampeau said he was unlucky, well, he hit a seven iron 40 yards to the right of the green on number 11. Now he's hitting a seven iron from two, three, five. Mm-hmm. Number 12, he drove it 50 yards offline. 13, 50 yards offline. I just don't think the old timers were to hit shots that bad. I think that they would have had a swing where they would understand the importance of getting it in the fairway. And I just, you know, you played Torrey Pines, Justin Thomas, wonderful player, drove it out of bounds on number 10. I didn't even know it was over there. Yeah, I didn't know there was so one either. so far offline, it's beyond comprehension almost. And so, uh, and then I watched Memphis. Guys were just spraying the ball, sowing the ball all over the course. But not one of them had kind of a low slider or, I don't know, something to squeeze it out there when you had to get the ball in play. So, uh, I think the ability to get the ball and play when you have to is a big deal. You got to have that swing. You know, Trevino wouldn't hit those drives. You know that Arnold wouldn't hit them. Jack very rarely under the gun hit drive sideways. And nor did he swing hard at it under the gun if he didn't have to. So I think, but I don't blame the players because this is how they grew up. You guys are working with them from this, yeah. this high. They're swinging as hard as they can, you know. But the problem is there's now 5,000 of those guys where before there, was, there wasn't 100 of them. So how are they going to separate themselves? So I think that the really great ones uh, manage themselves better and they manage the shot that they were playing better. I don't think we talk about that enough in instruction because we're so enamored with the distance and the, the numbers and all that stuff. But uh, how do you see the game? How do you manage yourself? Uh, Frank Beard, the old pro, is I see Frank a lot. He's probably the deepest thinker I've ever talked to in golf. I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody deeper 
And he was good enough to be a leading money winner in, in the 60s, you know, with Arnold and Jack and Casper and Trevino. So he beat them all for a year. And uh, he, he talks about all the time, are you able to check in with yourself at the existing moment of the shot you're hitting? Now, he said, everybody laughed at me because I drew the ball all the time. Well, I couldn't hit a fade. So I never tried to. <laughs> but when the pin was in the right, you see, I always missed it on the green. And I let my putter make some pars. He said, I had the ability to check in and say, okay, what shot do I think I can perform right here, right now at this moment? Hard to do under the gun. You've been there many times, you know. Instead of just taking something and swinging as hard as you can and hoping the earth comes underneath it. But he told me one time that, he said, anybody that ever played the tour could shoot 66 on Thursday, the same day that Jack shot 66. But a funny thing might happen on Friday. They'd get out on the range and they didn't have it for some reason. That happens. Well, Jack would own that and say, well, I'm going to shoot 70 or 71, stay in the tournament, where the other guy would panic and shoot 76, you see. And then Jack would find something Friday afternoon and shoot a pair of 68s and win. Frank said, in my mind, he won the tournament Friday when he knew he didn't have it, but he had plan B. He could flight down some irons, hit some different shots, as you know. And so he, rather than shoot 75, he could figure out a way to shoot 70 or 71. And so I don't think we talk about, you're all good when you're good. I mean, yeah. but what do you shoot when you're not good? So I think the great players have a way of getting it around when they didn't have their best stuff. You know, Tiger talked about it a lot. It kind of bothered us early on when he said he had my C game, you know, everybody, that guy's an arrogant. Well, he, he won enough tournaments, he was telling the truth, you know. And so I think the best players know how to score when things don't feel right. It's a hard thing to teach. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, Bill, how do we develop it? Good question. I think, um, all the younger players that I've talked to, like I said, I do almost all the teaching on the, on the course now uh, with them because all they want to know is the numbers and all I want to know is can you spit in your glove and make a four on this hole? <laughs> you got to make a four, you know? And, and so I think that um, you got to do it more on the course. I try to ask them, what are they thinking? Uh, when you get on this hole, what do you see? Uh, uh, I try to get them to participate in it because I think at some point you keep getting to the next level and the next level. And pretty soon you better have, you better be able to manage yourself. I think pretty good. See, I'm not one of those guys. Everyone said, John Rahm's got to calm down. No, he doesn't. That's his fire, man. That's who he is. Now he has to learn not to let that be a negative, but to tell John Rahm to act like Chip Beck wouldn't be any good. Right. So he is. He demands a lot of himself. So that fire, if it's directed in the right way, could be a good thing. But to tell him to all of a sudden be a zombie out there, I think would be the dumbest thing he could do, you know? Yeah. I never met anybody any good that didn't get mad. Yeah, I would agree with that. Not one guy that I ever met. Now, they show it differently, but you you walk the fairways with these guys. Just because Jay Haas wasn't a club thrower, you can be talking to himself pretty harshly. <laughs> Yeah. So you made a comment there that uh, 
great players had multitudes of shots. I tweeted out something not long ago that literally we all carry 14 clubs in our bag, but figuratively the best players in the world have 50 or more clubs in the bag. You're right. You would totally agree with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, most of the kids that we see today, they have no imagination and they don't really understand that uh, they've got to learn how to hit a single club, three different ways, basically. And, you know, you know, I, you, you made another statement. Jack Nicholas never hit it hard most of the time. I was forced into having to hit it hard. I didn't choose to hit it hard. The yeah. shot called on me to hit it hard. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think um, if DeChambeau learns to tone it down at the right time, you know, right now he's swinging as hard as he can on every shot, but with that advantage – if he will now look at Tiger and Jack and know when to use the distance and when not to, it could have a big advantage there, I think. Right now, so, I know he's pushing the envelope, and I, I like the fact that he's pushing the envelope because he's a risk taker. He was already a top 10 player when he did all this stuff. You know, some guys do that and you never hear from them again. So, but if he, if he would now look at Jack and Tiger, and know when to use that distance. It's not always an advantage when you drive it like a seed gun, you know. But boy, that this that is if you have that distance and then you have golf IQ and golf course management skills, that brings you to another level too, I think, because normal people cannot hit it that far. <laughs> Can't do it. Yeah. Billy, what uh which one's harder, being a tour coach or a tour caddy? Tour coach. Um, now, in my case, I never looked at myself as a coach. I, I looked at myself as a set of eyes. Uh, when I met Jay Haas, he was already good. Uh, when I was with Bill Haas, he was, he was already good. And so our father taught us that um, when you work with a good player, the first thing you do is look at what they do right because if they weren't doing a lot right, they wouldn't be any good. And so if they're already good, be very careful what you change because the golf swing for the elite player is a highly complex feel and touch system that makes sense only to the guy with the club in his hand. And so if you went to a range on tour, you would have no idea who Butch's students were. You wouldn't. You'd know who Foley's students were. You'd have known who Ledbetter's students were. You would have known who Hank's students were. So our dad taught us that um, look at why their swings work first, because they wouldn't be any good if their swing was terrible. And then be very careful on what you change. And uh, because, you know, elite players are elite, I think, in many cases, born elite. And if you go down that rabbit hole of trying to change them, they might not ever get out of it, you know? So uh, I love Roy McIlroy. I mean, I love his answers, the way he handles himself and stuff, but he seems to have lost the, the artist that he was. He was a free swinging and when he was on, he didn't get in his way. So there's a case of the less he knew, the better he was. And now he's had, I've never, 
heard of a great player, and boy, he's great, I think, that had six or seven putting coaches by the time he was 30. Like Butch said one time, whatever happened, hit it, aim it on the right edge and hit it the right speed. When did that go out of fashion? <laughs> you know, you read it, you aim it, you hit it the right speed. When, when did that become out of fashion? And so I think what happens is as a coach, if you have someone that's really gifted and they do it their way, you got to be real careful not to coach the genius out of them. Uh, Barney Adams, a club maker, said something real funny to me one time. He said, great players can make two plus two equal five work. <laughs> Doesn't have to be two plus two equals four. So you look at a guy, um, I don't know, he was a little bit before you, Hal, but Hale Irwin hardly ever hit bad shots. Yeah, I played a lot with Hale. He could start the ball online. My dad used to say good players start the ball where they want to. Nobody ever said swing like Hale, right? Bernhard Langer, look what he's done. No one ever uses his swing as a model, but we got Robert Rock and Ann Van Dam and uh-huh. Grant Wade, all good players. Don't get me wrong. These, this isn't a personal thing on all. But you're telling me their swing is better than Hale Irwin's? I say it isn't. Because the ball says it isn't, and the rep and the record says it isn't. So what is a good swing? You know, so, Lee Trevino, there's a good swing. So does this go back to it's a mind thing? They, you know, Robert Rock and Ann Van Dam, they can they can out hit you on the range. How how says it all the time. Lots of great guys on the range looked awesome on Wednesday, but they missed the cut on third after after Friday's round. So is this a you mentioned? I don't think swings win golf. I, I think people win golf tournaments, not swings. Right, and you you guys both mentioned That's what I think. You guys both mentioned Hal was a winner uh, in college, won the amateur, winning, winning, winning. There's something about winning, you know. And nobody ever said swing like Hal, you know. No, they didn't. Nobody ever said swing like Hal Irwin or Bernhard Langer or guys like that. And uh, so I think ultimately people. Jay Haas told me a story recently that he had a friend whose son went to Clemson and but he couldn't make the traveling team and would Jay watch him hit balls. And so Jay told him up front, I'm not a teacher. I'm a player. <laughs> so I don't, I'm going to look at you through the eyes of a player. And he said he was like everybody else. He could hit nine miles, but way up in the air, you know, and the good ones look good, but the bad ones were off the charts, but he never varied anything. Nothing like you talked about. He had 14 clubs, not 50. So I think he said to him, uh, now, when you play practice, do you beat the guys that you play with as much as they beat you? He said, oh, yeah, sure. you know." And he said, but they're on the traveling squad and you're not. So there has to be a reason for that, you know. And the reason is that they can learn to hit it good when they're nervous and scared. Because if you're beating them in practice, they're not better than you. See? But when the gun goes off, right? Uh, Jay at age 67 lost by a shot last week. Yeah, sure did. Says the good news and bad news. Good news that I played good. The bad news that I played so good, I'm going to see if I can keep doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Good for him. (laughs) But anyway, um, 
And as you, how you don't, you, and he said to this kid, he said, I, I, you know, I've just come to the conclusion that you've got to work on things that you're going to work on, uh, on the back nine on Sunday. And if you're not going to think about it on the back nine on Sunday, don't spend time working on it, which I think is pretty good advice. And he said, so I'm not a technician, you know, I think you have to figure out why you can't play under the gun like the other guy, five guys do. And I don't know if I can figure that out for you. I think it's something that's in the mirror. You know, I tell myself all the time, just because I'm nervous doesn't mean I got to hit a bad shot. It actually means that I'm playing good and I got a reason to be nervous, you know, and that's your reward. If you play championship golf, you're going to get out there and there's the whole world's going to be watching, you know, and some days that club doesn't feel good at the top and, you know, and you got to figure out how to advance that thing forward. Right. And if you can't do that, it's going to be hard to last, I think. Because everybody's good is good. It's just, what do you do when it isn't good? You know, That's the part I find that that's when you really determine who can play, I think. So every guy that plays the tour, their best shot, probably equally as good as everybody else's. No doubt about it. But the truth is the guys that are better, the top players, their worst shot is not as bad as the other guy's shot. I agree with that. And it's usually more well planned out and well thought out. Yeah. Well, I, I like to ask players, um, and I'll ask you this, uh, and it's not a negative question because it, to me, I want to learn what is the one tournament you could be driving down the road and you think of a tournament that you lost that just puts a knot in your stomach every time. You have one? Yeah. What is it? Uh, Kings Mill, two weeks before I won Riviera, I had a six-shot lead going in the last round and uh, let Calvin Pete beat me, and not because he played so good, but because I played so bad. And, you know, it just bore a hole in my soul, basically. I think it's really the reason why I won the PGA after that, because I didn't want that to define who I was. Now, do you remember going out there and making bad decisions, or you just didn't have it, or... Uh, well, I made I made uh, a couple of bad golf swings, and it started happened. me. It started me to thinking about what could happen, sure, instead of what I was going to do. Yeah, and you know, I got on the roller coaster of it going the wrong direction, and I didn't. Then I started overcorrecting. Yeah, and once I started overcorrecting, it just went from bad to worse. And you know, everybody's felt that at times, and going I mean, right I ahead. did not sleep that night after I got through. Mm -hmm. I shot 60 the next day at the uh, Cavalier Club at Virginia Beach. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I, with no sleep, but I had to go do something about it immediately. And so, yes, I've had that round. No, I, still, think that, I, still I think remember. all players have it. You know, they have a tournament that was theirs and they didn't handle it. You know, and that part of it, I tell all the young kids, if you can't handle adversity, you better get up to another, another sport, man. Because this is tough. It's a tough, tough game, boy. And you're going to have, you know, you play long enough, you're going to miss three or four cuts in a row and wonder if you're ever going to make a cut again. You know, it's just the way it is. And if you can't get over that, uh, that's why I've always admired the guys that uh, lost it and got it back. You know, a guy like Steve Stricker or guys that can last as long as Furyk has at that high level. Uh, the fact that Jay still cares so much is interesting to me, you know, that it's still in his blood that I, 
I hate playing bad, you know, and I, the only way to not play bad is to get better. You know, like you did right. the next day after Kingsmill. And I don't think we talk enough to the younger players that this is going to happen to you. <laughs> you yeah. will shoot 80 in that junior tournament one day, you know, yep. quite frankly, there's nothing wrong with it. It's part of the deal, you know, part of the process of, of it's life. Yeah. It's that's a learning experience. That's all it is, you know, and anybody can play good when things are going good. But how do you, how do you overcome uh, that feeling that, you know, God, I might not ever play good again, which isn't true, but sometimes you feel that way. You know? you know, Billy, I keep going back to this thing. Like, how do we teach it? How do we coach it? How do we, how do we get those players? The How, how do we develop mental, mentally tough players like a Hal Sutton or a Raymond Floyd? Um, Cause you know, there's, we all know players think, that, that aren't. I think Hal and Raymond were born with it. And so your question's a good one. I think some people just have it. Uh, but the ones that don't have it, I think you need to talk about it. You need to get it out. Don't bury it. Uh, I remember asking a young player one time, why do you think he, you haven't made it? And he said, I don't know. And I said, that's a dumb answer, man. <laughs> Your job is to know. <laughs> Your job is to figure out why Hal Sutton's beating me. You know, <laughs> I mean, you don't know. Well, to me, I say, well, the guy's got no chance, you know, because it never dawned on them to learn to, you know, to watch others and, and to learn from others. You don't always have to ask them. A lot of good players, as you know, how don't know what they're doing anyway. They say, well, I think I'm doing this. And you look at the video, they're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. But to them, they think that's what they're doing and they're hitting good shots. And so I, I think you have to keep talking about it. You have to own it. Um, you know, I, I can only go back... Uh, you know, over 29 years ago, I had to go into a room and say, hi, my name is Bill. I'm an alcoholic. I go into that room still 29 years later, six days a week at 5 a.m. And I say, I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. See, so I'm dealing with it all the time. So golfers, why can't they be uh, afraid every now and then and admit it and say, I feel insecure? It's okay. I think not admitting it and not owning it uh, Mike Donald told a funny story one time. He was on the nationwide tour late in his career, and a guy made finishing the top 25. I guess that got him on the tour. He said, Mike, what do I need to, to do to make it on tour? Mike said, well, someday you're going to have to shoot 67 or 8 the last round playing with Seve or Norman or Nick Price or Tom Watson or Trevino or Jack. The guy goes, oh, I'm not intimidated by anybody. I play my own game. And Mike said, oh, you've got the answer then, you know? <laughs> well, Mike knew the guy was whistling in the graveyard. So, of course, he missed. He didn't keep his card. And he saw Mike the next year. He says, you were right. He said, well, I knew I was right. But I knew I was right for a different reason than you thought. He said, because when you're a rookie on tour, and you walk on the range for the first time and you see Ernie talking to Nick Price. Nick Price is talking to Norman. And they look at you like, who is this guy? 
you don't exist in the world. You're, you don't even exist until you shoot 67 playing with them on Sunday. Then the next time they see you, they go, hey, Mike, what's going on? So there's a comfort level that you have to get. See, these guys all know each other. They fly around on private jets. They vacation together. Not only do they not know you, they don't care about you. So the only way to get them to care is you got to beat them playing with them. Not shot 77 playing with all of them. I shot some 67s too, you know, and if you learn to do that, that'll be your biggest barrier is to get on a tee with a great player and say, I'm on equal footing today with this guy. Because if you're not, you will shoot 75 or six. You know it, Hal. Yeah. It's just the way it is. It's the laws of the jungle out there. And if you keep shooting 77 with them, they still won't say hi to you the next week on the range. Go ahead and shoot 66 on Sunday and finish second or third with them. You don't have to win. See them in the locker room next week. Hey, Mike, what's going on? You know? That's right. <laughs> you're, now you're part of it, you see. But when you go out there for the first time, you're not a part of it until you prove that you are. And this guy told Mike, he said, you know, it's funny you say that. He said, I got my agent got me a deal with Reebok. My first month on tour, I did an outing with uh, Norman and Nick Price, and I was nervous on the tee <laughs> at the outing. He said, oh, man, Mike was right. You know, I'm out of my, my place. But the only way to get comfortable is you got to play good with them, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, a guy from Texas, his kid, Scotty Scheffler, you know, who uh, Steve Stricker, a hell, hell of a pick, really, picked that kid. But when he had a chance to win the PGA there at Harding Park, I think he was in the last group with DJ. I watched him. He walked like he belonged. He had a way about him. And then they said he won 75 junior tournaments. And when we were playing junior golf, there weren't 75 junior tournaments in 50 to years. To play you. <laughs> <laughs> 75 junior tournaments. That might be the greatest stat I've ever heard in the history of the game, you know? So he's a, he's a winner. Right. But he walked in that last group with Dustin Johnson. He looked like he belonged. I watched his body language, you know, and he didn't back. He might have shot 71, but that ain't shooting 80 in the last group, you know. So Nicholas made this point to me one time. He said, Howie said, you got to play in as many tournaments as you can get in and you need to win them. And he said, I don't care if it's the podunk open. You got to go win golf tournaments because before too long, you think of yourself as a winner when you do. Once again, Chase, how do we how do we put that into somebody that doesn't have that? That's not easy, you know. That's a. Uh, I don't know. I don't. It was interesting. There were guys that would have a chance to win on tour that weren't that good, and they'd win. Ed Fiore, Blaine McAllister, won five times. Blaine McAllister, I believe, has won as many tournaments as Tom Lehman. But for some reason. When he got there on Sunday, he spit in his glove and made a bunch of threes and fours, you know. Now, you wouldn't think that Blaine McAllister won as many tournaments as Tom Lehman, would you? No. But he did, you know. So what was that? A little kid from Fort Stockton putting left-handed, worst-looking putting stroke he ever saw. Couldn't putt really in his winning tournaments. <laughs> but it's interesting how some guys win when they get a chance. You know, they don't get that many, but when they do, they dig in. You know, and I don't know how you teach that. So 
Billy, you would be a self-proclaimed old school guy. Hal, you're kind of 50-50, maybe 60-40 old I'm a little school. more new school. I, I'm a, I keep up with it. I just don't talk. I just don't want you to know it. You're moving. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a question, and, and a good friend of ours, um, and you you know the name too, Monty Scheinblum. Um, oh, sure. He talks a lot about, you know, he had, he had you know, Nike.com status or, or you yeah. know, old school web.com whatever it's called back then um, yeah. and he, he says that his mechanics would break down when it mattered most that he could yeah. he could handle the speeds and the pressures and whatnot on a thursday on a friday but late saturday or late sunday they would break down we tend to talk a little bit more about that being and i'm not going to throw shit money's a great friend i'm not going to throw shade on money but we tend to say that now at least hal and i when we talk about this that tends to be more of a mental issue it tends to be the processes break down something's breaking down from a mental standpoint do you guys and billy do you think that mechanically there are changes that need to be made to certain players because their their swings won't hold up under intense major pressure Boy, that's a good one. Um, but I, I would tend to think that it does start with the mental process, lack of self-belief. And uh, I don't know, the more I watch great players, the, they have 51 clubs, they have this. And that self-belief is uh, unbelievable, really, under the gun. Uh, some people have it, some people get it on occasion um i think the fact that he was thinking that way sounds to me like he was waiting for it to fail yeah that's what i think and so i think that was in the back of his mind now i asked jay this one time because i know him well enough to say this to him i said jay it's hard not to take this the wrong way, but you, you played better in the hunt on the Champions Tour than you did on the regular tour. Now, only a real friend would say that, I think. And he had the answer, actually. He said, to be honest with you, I knew I was a good player on the regular tour, but I wasn't that next tier. I was just good, you know. And I think I didn't have the self-belief enough to, to do it. And when I got out on the Champions Tour, I made the Ryder Cup as a hell when I was 50. And I realized I was probably going to be in the hunt a lot. And I realized that I, I could, you know, I was always a conservative player. I was a short hitter. You know, I, I realized that I could probably figure out a way to finish third or fourth in a lot of tournaments. And everybody's going to say, good playing but I'd be the only one to know that I didn't have the you-know-whats to do it. And I didn't want to finish my career that way. So I forced myself to think more that I was good. I'm the best player out here. Uh, I can win. My good is as good as anybody else's. And I thought the fact that he admitted that was pretty good about the regular tour. He said, I knew who the elite ones were, you know, Tom and Lee and Jack and guys like that. And, uh, and I knew that they had more confidence than I had in my game. And, you know, because I was a short hitter and I couldn't hit it very far, I had this kind of uh, mistake, don't make mistakes. You know, I couldn't beat you if I was making a lot of mistakes. And that didn't translate good on Sundays, you know, when you had to win. Now he won nine or 10 times where it wasn't well, like he was a chop or something. 
but I think in his heart, he, he realized that, you know, I, I probably didn't think enough as a winner, let's say. Uh, Steve Elkington said something to me one time, and I'd like to ask you this, Hal. I thought it was brilliant. He said, other than the superstars, guys like me, if I'm going to win a tournament, I'm going to have to hit two or three shots on the back nine that don't fit my eye if I'm going to win. So then maybe that back left pin is something I don't like the look of it. Well, if I'm one down going to 15 and three of the next four holes of pins in the back left, I don't win unless I take it, take it on. And he said, the easiest thing to do is not take it on and give yourself 25, 30 footers. But if you don't make them, you're not going to win. And I thought that was a very interesting comment. He said, other than the super duper stars, you're going to have to hit two or three shots on that back nine on Sunday that don't, look right to you or feel right and you have to challenge it you know and I think that's something that I thought that was a wonderful comment well here you you said you wanted to ask me that I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna state it a little bit differently yeah everybody has strengths and weaknesses mm -hmm. in order to win you're gonna have to hit two or three shots that are not your strengths but are your weaknesses correct and you've got to have enough guts to stand over them and do it Exactly right. He mentioned this. Now, Steve can be acidic. I wasn't going to say when he wants to, he probably wakes up acidic. But he said, and this is what he said to me. He said, when Sergio got on the 18th hole at Carnoustie with a one-shot lead and Harrington in the clubhouse, he said, in my lifetime of playing the tour, I would easily put Sergio Garcia as a top five driver of the golf ball. Low, high, draw, fade. He could do anything with a driver. And in his time to win a major championship, he went against his strength and he hit an iron. So when it was all on the line, he talked himself out of the thing he did the best. Made bogey, went in a playoff, I think it was four holes or whatever came to that hole two back in the playoff, then hit driver, eight iron about 12 feet, but it was too late. And it kind of went almost the opposite. So his thing was why under the gun would you go away from the thing you do the best? Well, See, that's not your swing, that's you, right? That's your course management or your managing of yourself. And I'll guarantee you wouldn't have laid up Lanny Watkins wouldn't have laid up. Johnny Miller wouldn't have laid up. A lot of guys would have said, you know what? Hey, this is, oh man, this is great. I had a good drive. I got the, I'm winning the British Open. Well, another example of that at the British Open was Tom Watson putting it when the ball went over the green when he was 60 years old. One of the greatest pitchers and chippers of the ball ever in the history of the game, and he went against his strength. Pressure, and, pressure does funny things to all of us in all, all walks of life, you know, and, and, and we're always afraid of doing stuff because we might fail. Uh, Tom's a human being, you know, and we tend to think that these guys aren't human. When you were going good, oh, Hal Sutton's, he's not human. The hell he isn't, you know, he's yeah, really human. No, I mean, but they all are. And I, I say this all the time, the great players when they're playing good make golf look easy. It's not easy. What they're doing is not easy. 
I think Dustin, I was at the open at Wingfoot as a volunteer. It's the only way I can get on the grounds. And I think DJ finished fifth or sixth. And somebody said to me, what happened to DJ at, at the open? I said, he played good at a good tournament. So what do you mean? He, he, I said, what do you mean? 10 billion people on the planet, four people beat him. I said, what you think is what he does is easy to play golf like that. It ain't easy. And the reason I think he did great at the open is he didn't have it, you see? And he still figured out a way to finish fifth or sixth. So to me, it was a great tournament for Dustin Johnson because I know how hard elite golf is. Look at Justin Thomas. He's been getting in there a lot and not winning. Uh, and I look at him and I think he wants it too bad. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. He's not choking. He wants it so bad that he, he can't let it come to him. Does that make any sense? It does. I think that, so I say, to I say, me, I... that's not choking. I think he wants it. I think Jordan Spieth early in his career was that way. He wanted it so bad he didn't, you know, he couldn't figure out how to get the, you know, he, he lost, he was in the last group of the Masters and the Players Championship as a rookie. How good is that? And because he didn't win him, everybody says he's a choker. I say, he's not a choker. I said, he wanted it so bad he just didn't know what to do with the energy. Well, I say, I say it all the time in here. Winning runs into you. You don't run into winning. You keep doing the same things right, and it's going to run into you Absolutely. eventually. Absolutely. What a great line. See, I love that thing, you know, the, the difference between the way Steve, you know, your strengths and your weaknesses. You know, at some point in time, now I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but when you did beat uh, Tiger, which, which, you know, of course, he's mouthing off to Tiger. He says, you know, hell, he – You'll drum him today because he doesn't have the short game, you know, around those greens. You know, it's, that's not his strong suit. And when the tournament was over, <laughs> Tiger said to Bush, he, he didn't need a short game. He hit every green today. <laughs> I you beat him with my advice. strength. You gave me bad you know, advice, Billy, Butch. <laughs> this, this is one of the things that I kept telling myself that day. I have the advantage because he's going to outdrive me on every hole, and I'm a better iron player, so I'm going to keep the pressure on Tiger. That's which right. I did that day. Yes, you did. You did. So, but you knew your strengths, you know. Uh, everyone says, you know, Tiger had a better short game than Jack. Well, he had a better short game maybe than anybody, but Jack didn't need the short game like Tiger did. Right. Jack well, Billy, a whole lot of greens. We appreciate you being and, on here. Anytime. You've been uh, uh, part of the greatest family in golf. And, uh, I've been lucky there. Well, your knowledge, though, has come out clearly on this podcast well, let, let me end, end with a uh, i've told you this before but about in the last four or five years i asked jay haas who the best captain he ever played for in in Ryder cups president's cups he said they were all good bill he said my job was to play they were all good captains they all wanted to win they did everything they could to win but i'm going to tell you who my favorite was it was hal sutton and I said, why is that? He said, because he wore his patriotism on his sleeve. Everybody thinks I'm going to tell you that Hal wasn't a good captain. He was a proud American, and I was proud to play for him. Well, I appreciate that, Billy. That means a lot. Good stuff. Thank you, Billy. All right, guys. Thanks, Billy. Be the right club today. Yes!